This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert, caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning, and thanks for sharing your summer Sunday with us here at Your Radio Doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. COVID has caused so much disruption, and its rippling effects continue to seep into every facet of life. For months, there was great concern about shortages of face masks, ventilators, medicines, even toilet paper and paper towels, but not much attention was given to the very urgent need for blood donations. On June 14th, World Blood Donor Day, the Red Cross issued a statement reporting that the U.S. is experiencing a severe blood shortage, a shortage that extends to blood donation centers across the country. The Red Cross Chief Medical Officer reported on national television that it's the most concerning situation she's seen in her career. Joining us today to make us aware of this critical issue and share how we can help is Dr. David Moulton, graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, a pathologist, and the medical director of the American Red Cross. Welcome, David. We're so fortunate to have you today. Well, thank you uh, for having me on the show. David, you've been with the Red Cross since 1992, and you've never seen a situation quite like this. How did we get here? What are the factors that have contributed to this current critical shortage? Well, it's really kind of a perfect storm. I mean, obviously, with the pandemic, we're dealing with, with something unprecedented in, in just so many different ways. And, and blood, the blood supply is no, uh, is no exception. Uh, you know, during the pandemic itself, we actually were doing okay sadly because hospitals were so busy taking care of covid patients that they weren't really doing anything else or they were doing everything else at a, at a bare minimum but now that you know we're coming out of the the crisis uh, we're really starting to to feel the effects in, in terms of the blood supply this is the worst uh, it's ever been certainly that i've ever seen we've had shortages uh, at times that have been quite severe especially in the summertime over the years but nothing like this uh, you know, during the pandemic, uh, of course, everything was disrupted, and we're still seeing a lot of disruption. It's it's very hard for us to to collect blood in the in the places that we usually collect blood. A lot of businesses, schools, and so forth, uh, even as they begin to come back, are, are not really ready 
to open the doors for everything, you know, uh, such as as, uh, as running blood drives. So it was difficult for us uh, to to you know get up to speed with what we usually do with blood collection. In addition to that, uh, most people may not know that we plan our blood drives, a lot of our operations, uh, you know, up to a year in advance. It takes a lot of planning to put together a blood drive. Uh, you know, people are generous enough to host us at their business, their church, uh, wherever. And uh, we, we've got to plan that and organize that. And of course, during the pandemic, uh, that was very difficult, if not impossible to do. So we're really behind in terms of, of that planning. We don't have things in place in addition to the disruptions I already mentioned. And then you add on top of that, the fact that hospitals, because they you know, are unable to do things, a lot of things during the pandemic are now kind of making up for lost time. Patients who had put, you know, put off surgeries as long as they could, uh, procedures of other kinds, uh, you know, treatments for cancer, what have you, transplants, many things that, that weren't done or were done at a minimum during the pandemic, uh, you know, we're, we're going full speed ahead to do now. We're also seeing more trauma there, you know, there's more, uh, you know, things have picked up in that regard, unfortunately, uh, in the summertime, we, people are out and about and there's more accidents, there are more things going on. Uh, and, and, and so again, that people are catching up, unfortunately, for a lost time in that regard. So for all those reasons, we're seeing a big surge in, in, in utilization. People are using a lot more blood and needing a lot more blood all of a sudden. And we're, we're just not, you know, we're just not in a position to be able to meet the need. So hospitals are desperately short. Patients are not getting what they need. And, and as I said, it's a perfect storm. We're in really bad straits. Right. So there's so many layers to this. And I remember we had a great chat the other day that I learned, and it makes sense if you count on schools and businesses, but schools in particular, during the summer you see a little bit of a drop anyway, and people are on vacation. Absolutely, the summer is difficult COVID, for us because people, people haven't go been on gathering, vacation. so you can't really count on companies and schools that are hybrid in attendance. And as you say, during that entire year, you weren't able to do your proactive planning for 2021, so that's a double effect. And it is, it is really upsetting to hear that we've seen an increase in trauma. I know I was reading the other day that, um, of course, trauma can require transfusions. And I read that 20 to 40% of trauma deaths after being hospitalized involve massive hemorrhaging. So if we're seeing a 10% increase in demand since 2019, that's just another layer. So basically, decreased supply at a time of increased demand does not make for a good combination. And I guess, too... The whole blood slide, oh, sorry, the blood supply chain is pretty complex. After the donations, it has to be collected and tested and processed. And I guess COVID could disrupt any of those steps. Yes, that's correct. Uh, you know, I, again, our biggest disruption, the biggest shortage we we have is is just blood donors themselves. But certainly during the pandemic itself, we we were short of PPE like everybody else. You know, we we make our blood drives. We followed all the guidelines. Make them safe uh, for, for donors. So they, we had the, you know, the, uh, the isolation and the separation. Folks had PPE. Uh, and of course, it was difficult to get that just as it was for hospitals. Uh, and we had shortages with other supplies that are involved with, you know, with, with collecting blood and processing it. But, but really, the biggest, uh, the biggest issue uh, uh, is just not enough donors. And I guess as well, we know that elective procedures were delayed during COVID. And as you say, this is catch up time. I wonder if some of those who had to delay their care would need more blood um, donated than if they had been treated a year ago too. I guess that's another element that would add to the need. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it unfortunately, again, people, and for understandable reasons, postponed care uh, that they might have needed and are now in, in, you know, in a, in a, in a uh, uh, you know, maybe a more precarious situation. Uh, you know, the, 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 the physicians, the, the hospital resources may not have been there, so, so uh, they couldn't have gotten what they needed. And now, you know, it, the situation is that much, uh, you know, more, more urgent. Uh, and, and so blood utilization is going to be greater under those circumstances, so that's a good point. And the other interesting point we hear on the news, restaurants, all sorts of businesses can't keep their staff. So if you're having trouble staffing to do the collecting and all the processing too. So we know the Red Cross likes to have about a five-day supply, and we're currently seeing maybe a half-day supply. What does that mean to a listener? What impact does that have on me as a listener? Well, I hate to say it, but you know what? Unfortunately, we're in a situation now where if you or a loved one, uh, you know, unfortunately had an accident or needed surgery or something uh, like that urgently, uh, you might not have uh, the blood that you need. And it's not just the, you know, the dramatic situation. It's also the more routine ones where, uh, you know, because of the belt tightening, because hospitals are trying to cut back and save blood, they're using less uh, all over the place. And so maybe, you know, the, those calculations you know they they you know they they use a little less than they should and somebody you know has a you know doesn't do as well so that's a problem too and it's harder to measure let's take a little break and we'll be right back with dr david moulton from the american red cross with his very very important message thanks for listening to your radio doctor with dr marianne ritchie exclusively presented by independence blue cross if you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. And welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie, and here with us today is Dr. David Moulton from the American Red Cross. David, each time a person receives blood, their own blood has to be typed and crossed. Maybe people have heard of that expression, but what does that mean? Well, that basically means is they'll take a, a sample of, of blood from both the person who uh, uh, is, uh, and we'll do that ahead of time, who's donating blood so we know what their type is. And then at the hospital, uh, you know, that unit is there, uh, and they'll type it again, the unit itself, uh, and then they'll type the patient who's getting it. So that way they know that the, that the types match and that we're able to give blood uh, that, that is a match. Now, blood can be given that is either type identical, that's the same type, or in some cases somebody can get blood that's a different type but is still compatible. So for instance, type O is a universal donor, so even if you're type A, you can get type O blood because it's compatible even though it's not the same type uh, as, as yours. So without making myself sound too boring, there are proteins on the surface of red blood cells and we want to make sure that they're happy with the incoming blood. So if a person is type A, they have the A protein, or B, type B, or type AB, and type O means they're, that none of these proteins are on the red cells. Is that a pretty clear way to explain it to our listeners? That's correct, that's correct. So if, you, if you're AB, you have both A and B substance or protein on your, on your cells. Uh, if you're O, you, don't, you have neither. So the universal donor means that type O doesn't have any warriors that will interfere with the warriors that are on the uh, 
the recipient's blood cells, nothing that would uh, be incompatible, which could cause a life-threatening uh, reaction. Am I right about that? That's correct. When it comes to ABO, these are things that basically develop very shortly after birth uh, based on your genetics. And so pretty much you will have those antibodies uh, from very early on. Uh, there's also RH type, uh, uh, which uh, people will be either RH negative or positive, and so you'll hear that somebody is O negative or O positive, and they're referring to the RH type. And that's something where normally you won't have antibodies, uh, but you can develop them very easily if you're exposed to the wrong uh, type. So if you're RH negative and you get RH positive blood, then you can develop an antibody, and that happens uh, very frequently, and that can be an issue. Uh, both for getting transfusion or in the case of a, a woman who, who might have children, uh, it can be an issue uh, causing uh, you know, danger to the fetus, to the baby, uh, if she were to be sensitized to develop an antibody uh, to RH. If you're RH positive, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, you can't, uh, uh, you don't have to, there isn't an issue. You will not make, or other people who make an antibody uh, of any kind won't be a problem for you because you, you have the RH, uh, uh, or rather you won't make an antibody, I should say. Uh, because you already have the protein. So I guess type O blood, if that's the universal uh, blood type that's donated, um, is the one in most short supply because it's the one most often used, especially, as you mentioned before, at a time of a patient in tr who's sustained trauma, you might not have time to type and cross. So you want to keep them alive by giving them blood with uh, type O. And there's, I guess, also an emergency need for platelets, that portion of the blood that helps us clot. Tell us about that, if you would. Right. So uh, platelets are very important. They're little tiny particle cells, basically, that uh, will clump up and you know, uh, plug up holes in blood vessels. And that's essential to stop bleeding. If you don't have platelets, you, won't, you can't stop bleeding. So they're very important. And uh, we, we collect platelets using uh, a process called apheresis, where somebody donates blood on a machine, and a little tiny amount of blood is, is taken from their arm, uh, is processed in the machine to take the platelets out, and is returned to them. And that cycle is repeated uh, over and over again until we get enough platelets in the bag uh, to have a dose uh, to treat a patient. Uh, platelets only uh, last in the bag and in storage for five days, so it's something we have to keep replenishing all the time. That's something that's important about to point out about blood is that it's, it's perishable, doesn't last very long. Uh, you can't store it for, for very long and you need to keep getting people donating um, uh, in order to stay ahead. So what might be the most likely reasons why a patient would need blood or blood products? Probably the biggest reason is surgery. Uh, uh, that very commonly used in any number of surgeries. Transplants, obviously, when there's an accident, when there's trauma, uh, often quite a bit of blood is used, but, but lots of surgical procedures, although surgeons have gotten you know, better and better, are very good at doing surgery with you know, very little blood loss. Uh, the techniques have really improved. Uh, it, it's still, there's still a need for many surgeries. That's probably the most common. And then you know, also uh, patients who are getting treated for cancer will often, because their bone marrow will get suppressed by the, the disease and also by the treatments for it, uh, will often uh, need blood, particularly platelets, but also uh, you know, uh, red blood cells as well. Mm -hmm. So if we're urging people to listen to the message to donate, could you walk us through the process? It's, it's pretty straightforward. It takes less than an hour. And what would a person expect to go through? 
Right. So basically, you know, you would you would show up, you'd sign in, you'd show an ID. Uh, we'd give you a pamphlet to read uh, that would basically, uh, you know, just to inform you about what the process is like. Uh, and uh, then you'd answer a few questions. We basically, you're you're given a private, confidential interview. We'll ask you a few questions about your health, uh, the places you've traveled, uh, and um, prescription drugs you might be taking. You know how you're feeling that day. We'll check your temperature, uh, your pulse, uh, your blood pressure. We'll check your hemoglobin level to make sure you know it's safe for you to donate. And uh, then basically, you know, you you lie down. Uh, we'll, we'll cleanse your arm. We use a, a clean, brand new needle, uh, so there's no risk of getting anything from donating blood. That's perfectly safe. Uh, and uh, you know, it's it's a small prick, just like when you know you get a, a blood specimen drawn. Uh, it's a small prick, and then uh, basically we take out about a pint into a plastic bag. It takes about 10 minutes for the actual uh, uh, removal of the blood. That's it. Then, then basically, you hang around for about 15 minutes. We have refreshments, uh, so, you know, basically just to make sure you feel fine. And then, you know, you're you're on your way. That's pretty much it. So I know um, the average listener thinks that you go. To, we do go to great lengths to protect the person receiving the blood, but you want to protect the donor too. You're going to check the person's hemoglobin, make sure it's not too low. Um, the age is 17 or older in most states, I guess. Sometimes high school students or others um, younger would have to meet the height and weight requirement. Isn't it about 110 pounds minimum? That's correct. I mean, there's, you know, it also varies a little with height, but basically to keep it simple, yeah, about 110 pounds. And with parental permission in, in, in most states, if you're 16, uh, you can donate. But 17 mm -hmm. uh, would otherwise be the cutoff. And there's no upper limit you can donate as long as you're healthy uh, and feel and feel up to it. Uh, you can donate uh, as long as you want to, to any age. And to put things into perspective, I know you said that we take about a pint of blood with a donation, but our bodies, the average person has five quarts of blood. So that's a good image for people to take away that it's probably less than 10% of a person's total volume. And how else do you protect the donors? We mentioned age, weight, and eligibility. Um, you're going to exclude certain people if they have what kinds of conditions? Well, uh, there's a fairly long list of things, but basically, uh, uh, you know, things that might cause uh, an issue for the recipient. So, for instance, if you have certain kinds of infectious diseases or a history of those diseases, uh, then you wouldn't be able to donate because of the risk you might pose uh, to the person receiving the blood. Uh, conversely, if you know, if you have any number of uh, of uh, health conditions uh, where you might not feel up to it uh, or where there might be a risk to a special risk you. For instance, if you have heart disease that's significant, uh, then that might be an issue. Uh, you know, uh, cancer history where you, you haven't been, uh, either the tr cancer hasn't been fully uh, treated or certain kinds of cancers can be an issue uh, just because of their nature, uh, because they're in the blood. So for instance, leukemias and lymphomas uh, because they involve the blood and bone marrow, uh, those folks unfortunately can't donate. Uh, but basically, if you're in good health, and, and actually even with with you know variety of health conditions, as long as they're under control and, and you know you're 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 feeling good, for most things uh, you're eligible. Uh, the main that's the main thing. If you're feeling well, if your blood counts are good, uh, then you know chances are you probably are eligible. We do have on you know we go to Red, Red Cross. Uh, 
www.ghostbusters.org, you will see there's a long list. You can check out things if there's a particular thing you're concerned about, and, and, they, go, and they go into great detail. And I'm sure that um, we know that you monitor the donors through the process, checking their vital signs, their blood pressure frequently, give them lots of liquids before and after so they don't feel dizzy and that their own volume is repleted. How often can a donor give blood? If you're donating whole blood, it's every 56 days. Um, that would be the most common thing. If you're donating platelets, you can actually do it every seven days up to 24 times a year. That's where you get on the apheresis machine. If you're donating plasma, which is the liquid part of blood, uh, that could be done basically once a month every 28 days. If you do power reds, which basically you get on the phoresis machine, but they actually take off uh, the equivalent of two uh, uh, units of red cells. It's not two pints, it's actually just one pint. But here, because of the apheresis technology, they're concentrating the blood. Uh, you can do that every 100, 112 days. Good to know. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. David Milton on the American Red Cross. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. Today we're talking about the critical shortage of blood donations that's occurring across the country with Dr. David Moulton from the American Red Cross. David, we talked about how we protect donors to make sure they're in good condition to donate. It's such a gift to give blood. How do we protect the recipients? Probably uh, the most important safeguard uh, that we do is the testing. We test for uh, diseases that can be transmitted by blood. Uh, and uh, that testing is, is uh, although nothing is perfect, it's as close to perfect as uh, you know, might be humanly possible. The chances of getting AIDS, which of course is what everyone dreads, you know, HIV from a blood transfusion, is, is millions to one. Uh, and the only reason that it occurs at all is just because when someone is first infected, uh, their levels of the virus are so low uh, that you know, the testing just can't find it. But uh, but otherwise, uh, we'll find everybody uh, who has the virus or the antibody to it. And, and so, as I said, the risk is, is millions to one. The same is true for hepatitis. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, we're as close to risk-free uh, from the standpoint of transmissible disease, uh, you know, as, as, as we're likely to get, uh, and certainly than we've ever been. So it's, it, it's very, very safe to get blood uh, compared to the past. Uh, and that's the biggest safeguard. We, we, of course, go ahead and ask questions. We will, you know, we do screen our donors, and if donors have a history of engaging in, in you know, behaviors that put them at risk for, for having a disease that might be transmissible by blood, then, you know, they, they're not able to donate uh, either permanently or, to, or, or temporarily, depending on the situation. Uh, if they've traveled to places mm -hmm. where uh, there might be a risk of getting infected with something, say malaria, uh, for instance, then uh, they would be deferred uh, uh, according, uh, you know, to where they've been and the type of uh, malaria and, and, and the length of time. There'd be a length of time that they would be unable to donate until we'd be sure that they would be safe to donate. And I know you ask people if they've had 
uh, certain vaccinations, what would that include? Maybe the shingles vaccine or what vaccine might eliminate a donor? I mean, all vaccines are an issue in the immediate aftermath or, or many vaccines are. So, you know, depending on the type of vaccine, somebody might need to wait, you know, a couple of weeks, a month. It depends on the vaccine, but vaccines can potentially create an issue. If, if someone has gotten a live attenuated vaccine, or they've gotten a, a vaccine that actually has the, the, trans, you know, the transmitting agent that usually is weakened in some way so that you know, it, can, it causes the immune system to become activated. In somebody, a patient who perhaps is immunocompromised, that theoretically could pose an issue. So in those kinds of situations, we want to wait until uh, you know, enough time has gone by. But, but there are a number, any number of vaccines in the immediate aftermath of getting them. But usually those intervals are very short. Uh, none of them are permanent. Mm-hmm. They're, they're for very short periods of time that it might be a problem. So even since I was in training, it has come so far in terms of safety because we can, when I was in medical school, there was no test. Hepatitis C had not been isolated. We weren't able to test what we used to call it non-A, non-B. We knew about hepatitis A and B. and so we're able to safeguard people from HIV, as you mentioned, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, West Nile virus, things people would never think of. The Red Cross has really vetted. Um, syphilis, who thinks of that these days? Zika virus, which was so common in the news some time ago. And even CMV, I don't think most people would know what that is, but it's a virus that sometimes we see in immunosuppressed patients. So you do the testing, but you also ask the donor if there aren't any medications that could have an adverse re, uh, reaction in the person receiving the blood. So it's just so impressive. And one of the things you started to talk about was that you interview the donor privately because you collect the blood publicly. So let's say the boss in the office is sick and everybody wants to be a helper or somebody in the family and you want to donate your blood. But, but privately, you know, you may have been exposed to a condition that would make your blood um, not acceptable. Tell us about that. Right. So, you know, it's understandable that somebody would feel pressure uh, in those kinds of situations. Everyone's, you know, in, in a particular group at work, they're all going down to donate and, and you know, you you'd feel a little strange about, you know, deciding not to do it because you, you know, feel worried about how it looks. What we do basically is we give people the option to confidentially self-exclude. So basically, uh, you know, they'll go ahead and do the donation so because, you know, it'll look like they donated like everybody else because, as you pointed out, you know, the donation occurs in a common area, the number of people all donating at the same time. We can't pretend to collect the blood. So we'll collect the blood, but if you have basically said that you want to self-exclude, we'll, we'll discard that blood, uh, and all of that's kept confidential. So you don't have to worry about... Uh, you know, what other people think. You can go ahead, show up like everybody else, go through the process, uh, and we just won't use the blood if you tell us that you don't want us to. So I guess the big question that some people might have while they're listening is, is transmission of COVID an issue? I mean, respiratory viruses in general, they're not an issue. Am I right about that? Right. You know, we, we've never had an issue uh, with respiratory viruses. I mean, we don't take donors who are coughing and sneezing and have colds or flus because probably it's not good for them to donate. You know, they're already feeling, not feeling well and to put them through the process. Plus they're going to potentially infect other people at the, at the collection site. So we tell mm-hmm. people who are feeling sick, stay home, don't come and donate. 
But as far as it being transmitted by blood, no, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. I looked at it exhaustively with COVID uh, just to be sure, and there's no evidence it's transmitted by blood. And because of the safety precautions that we put into place, as far as we know, no one got COVID coming in to donate. Uh, our blood collection sites were safe. People were able to donate safely. Uh, so it wasn't a hazard. Uh, even during the you know, heights of the pandemic, uh, we took special precautions to protect people. So the donors were safe, too. Mm-hmm. So no cases of transfusion transmitted COVID have been reported in the United States. So we don't screen for COVID in the blood, just so people understand that. And those who've had the COVID vaccine, they're still eligible to donate. Am I right about that? They can donate blood or platelets, but when they arrive, you want you want them to be able to tell you um, the name of the vaccine they had, whether it was an RNA vaccine or the J and J. Right. I mean, we're, we're 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 we actually have been looking at antibodies in in blood donors right from the get go with this. Uh, early on, of course, they didn't have vaccines. So if we found antibodies, all of those antibodies were from people who had had COVID. And we were actually looking at that and we were working with the government, with the CDC and, and you know, and others, uh, giving them data, uh, you know, because we, we collect blood from lots and lots of people. So we were getting information about people who otherwise were healthy uh, in terms of whether they had had COVID and so forth. So, it, you know, we, we'd like to know what if people have antibodies, where they're from, because we're, we're looking for antibodies uh, in everybody. We have been for really since uh, over a year ago, since last June, we started looking uh, at our blood donors for antibody levels. That's really interesting because if nothing else, it gives people an idea of the prevalence of antibodies in people who may have been without symptoms, right? It gives a, another perspective of how much COVID has traveled among the population. Right. Uh, in fact, our, our numbers are pretty high. You know, during the height of the pandemic, we were seeing antibody levels that were approaching 10% uh, of people coming in. So uh, it was quite prevalent. And uh, uh, the other thing, of course, during the pandemic is we were actually collecting blood deliberately from people who had had COVID and had antibodies before the vaccine. Oh, that's right. Uh, and using that to treat patients, so-called convalescent plasma, people who had re- recovered from COVID, and uh, but now they're because of their immune systems are revved up, they're making antibodies, and there's antibodies in their plasma, so we're actually we're using that plasma to treat patients. It's unclear uh, what the efficacy was. You know, it's they're still still being worked out uh, how well and useful, and which patients benefit from getting it. But it was used, uh, you know, by uh, hospitals throughout the country uh, during the pandemic because there was so little they could offer uh, offer patients who were really sick, you know, and that was one of the things that was used and tried, and, and probably has some benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's again hard to know exactly which patients benefit most. So sometimes you have a donor that you delay temporarily. We say we want to make sure you've been back from abroad where you may have been exposed to malaria, or we want to make sure that that medicine is out of your system before you donate and they're temporarily deferred. Other people that are permanently deferred might have a condition that we mentioned or have been exposed to an infection. Um, But I think the important message for people to hear is that the interview, I've never seen a more clever um, form that people have to fill out. They, They mention every possible risk factor that might make their blood not appropriate for donation, like 
their sexual history. Um, have you a new partner? Has that partner had relations with people at risk? And it goes on and on so that the person can clearly say, uh, you've taken me off the hook if, if I'm concerned about giving my blood. And it's so important to be honest. It's confidential. We'll st still take your blood in public, but you'll look like a good guy or gal if you donate uh, for that person in your workplace or your family. Correct. And, and if you go to Red Cross, redcrossblood.org, uh, again, all of that information is there. So if, if you have questions, if you have concerns, you'd like to donate, but you're not sure, gee, I have you know, XYZ problem, is that going to be an issue? There's an exhaustive list. It's all there. You just look it up, uh, and you can find out right away what the you know whether you're allowed to donate. If you're not, uh, you know, if there, is there a waiting period? How long that period is? It varies, uh, and, and so on. So you can find it all there, uh, and then decide uh, you know what you'd like to do. Perfect. So the website is redcross.org. I'm sorry, Red I, I misspoke earlier. I said redcross.org, which is in fact a website. Uh, but the specific one for blood donation is redcrossblood.org. Gotcha. We'll be right back after this quick break. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA 1-888-RECOVERY. In our final segment with Dr. David Moulton from the American Red Cross, we learn that every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs blood. David, what is your final message for our listeners? How can they find a center to donate blood or platelets? Well, again, if you go to redcrossblood.org, uh, basically you can put in your information, you know, where you live, your zip code, and find the nearest uh, 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 place to donate. Uh, and also, uh, you know, based on a calendar, if you want to donate next Saturday or two weeks from from Tuesday, uh, you can see what, what's available uh, in terms of location and time. So it's it's really all there, uh, as well as the other information I already mentioned. So if you want to donate, that's the fastest, easiest way to go about uh, uh, you know getting started. Um, but really, the the, the, the take-home message is we need blood desperately more than ever. I know people have heard that message before. We've had shortages before, uh, but this is truly uh, an, un an unprecedented situation. Uh, and, uh, you know, it could be you, it could be a family member uh, who needs blood. Uh, you never know, things happen. And, uh, you know, it, people are getting back into the swing of things, which is great. Uh, but don't be complacent about, uh, about, you know, about blood. It's, we're, we're still uh, in the throes of, uh, of our crisis, even as, uh, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic. Our crisis is really kind of in the, in the, uh, at the we're at the heart of it now because, uh, as I've said earlier, the hospitals are going full speed. They're trying to catch up. They're trying to take care of people who need the care. And, uh, you know, we're behind because of, uh, of, of our not being able to collect the way we usually do, not being able to plan our drives, uh, not having as, as many places to go uh, as we're used to. So we need people to kind of help us, you know, make up for that by coming out, uh, you, know, uh, you know, as much as they can. Uh, uh, to donate only five percent of two cities the best of times the worst of times where we have a high demand and a low supply for so many reasons that you described so clearly and i think people need to know that the american red cross is part of the world's largest volunteer network found in nearly 200 countries we're talking about donating blood last week we talked about lessons for life saving and cpr um it shelters feeds and provides comfort to victims of disaster it supplies 40% of the nation's blood. Um, 
international humanitarian aid and it supports veterans, military members and their families. But to deliver your mission, you depend on volunteers and the generosity of the American public. So as Dr. Moulton said, redcrossblood.org if you want to donate and you want to donate we need you to it could be you or a family member or friend that needs blood and learn more about all the services on redcross.org dr david moulton director of the american red cross thank you so much for joining us today we learned so much and invaluable message thank you marianne uh i'm very grateful for the opportunity uh, to speak with you here today and I hope people uh, you know, hear the message and, and come out and donate. And now for your real champion, I call this segment Haley's Sunshine. Children, the most precious gift. And when a child dies, it's devastating. It's not supposed to happen. No parent should outlive his or her child. We comfort the child who's been ill and experienced suffering, and we automatically reach out to grieving parents. But what about the other children in the family? Who thinks to console them? Haley Reith was a happy, outgoing 11-year-old girl, full of life. In May of 2017, she was diagnosed with leukemia. Haley faced several rounds of treatment. She was strong. She wasn't afraid of needles. Her mother recalls the time she woke up after a procedure and said, anesthesia is fun. Things were going well. Her parents did everything they could to get her home for Christmas. And in early 2018, her doctors were so pleased with her progress, they said she wouldn't even need a bone marrow transplant. Her hair was growing back and she was ready to move on. Then came a day in early February. She had pain in her leg, but no fever. Her mom and dad knew to move quickly, so they brought her to the hospital. But inside of 12 short hours, Haley was gone. Infection can overwhelm a cancer patient when chemo wipes out the white blood cells, the soldiers that fight bacteria and viruses. Her battle lasted only seven months. At the time, Haley's little brother was only nine years old. Jimmy idolized his big sister and he was crushed by her loss. Ironically, their mom Jennifer also suffered a tragic loss at the age of nine when her own father died far too early. She always prayed that nothing would befall either of her own two children at this young age. There was no counseling for children when Jennifer was a child. Now brokenhearted herself, Jennifer knew that as a mother, she had to be strong and support her remaining child who needed her desperately. Jimmy became the inspiration for a way to handle the grief she shared with her husband. They didn't want to see Haley's smile go to waste, so they formed Haley's Sunshine. The mission? to bring sunshine and hope to children who have suffered the loss of a family member. Their sunshine boxes contain gifts to make a child smile and limit the burden of sadness even for a moment. The boxes also contain resources for parents, such as a book dealing with grief. And the ultimate goal is to grant a special wish to these grieving children. They reach out locally and across the country. They've even sent boxes to Iceland. Granting a child's wish might mean sending money for a puppy for the family. One mom used Haley's sunshine money to take her daughter for a grief weekend. For another family, it helped the cost to take their several children to Disney World. Recently, Jimmy said that Haley never got her wish and asked if he could make one instead. What a thrill for him to meet Saquon Barkley of the New York Giants on the sideline at the Eagles-Giants game in Philadelphia. Jimmy is now 13, starting 8th grade in the fall. Jennifer received a sweet text from her cousin the other day which said, 
you're continuing to mother Haley by being such a good mom to Jimmy. Haley's smile is being shared and celebrated. Jennifer said she always wanted to be in the spotlight and Haley would be so happy to know her name is being used for good. We salute you, Haley Reith, your brother Jimmy, and your mom and dad, your real champions. Help to bring a smile to the face of a sad child and bring comfort to a grieving family. Visit www.haleyssunshine.org. That's H-A-Y-L-E-Y-S sunshine.org. Or send an email to haleysunshine at gmail.com. Thanks for listening today and every Sunday. Please send us a story of a real champion in your family, neighborhood, church, or workplace. Today you heard from the medical director of the American Red Cross. Our nation is dealing with a critical shortage in our blood supply. We need it to save patients with cancer, sickle cell, those having surgery or suffering from trauma. Last week, Elena Mauger, Red Cross Regional Communications Manager, shared a fantastic list of water safety tips for the summer. Listen again to both of these shows and all of our shows and champion segments on our website, yourradiodoctor.net. Sign up to be on our mailing list. Visit redcross.org to see where you can donate blood, take a course in CPR, or share your dollars with this stellar organization that teaches life-saving, provides disaster relief around the world, and supports veterans, military, and their families. Tune in next week. Learn about opioid addiction. There's help at the Recovery Centers of America. Also, Independence Blue Cross celebrates their 10-year anniversary of their foundation that helps so many, including those with addiction. Have a great week, and before it starts, enjoy the next two hours of musical bliss with Sid Mark and the Sounds of Sinatra. This is Dr. Marianne Ritchie, your radio doctor, here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.